0: Be together, it's good to study together. I'm thankful for your involvement with that. Uh, before we start it'd be good if we'd have a prayer. Josh would you late us. Dear
1: God, we come to you at this time. Thank you for this day that you've given us to be able to be here as brothers and sisters in you, Father, to study your word, to see how you work through the prophets. Even though sometimes they had to do strange things in our eyes, Father, but still they were preaching your word to us, showing us how we needed to be. We pray that we can see those examples and that we can see how sometimes serving you is different than what everybody else thinks. Help us in that that we will not fall into the temptation to not be true to you father in hard times but that we will always stay in your word and follow you in your son's image how's the temperature pretty warm Warm. freezing cold (laughs) anybody cold (laughs) (laughs) you
0: cold somebody cold all
2: right
0: hosea chapter 5 would somebody read
1: 1 to 7 <clears throat> <clears throat> Hear this, O priest, get heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the kings, for the judgment applies to you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread out on a table. The revolters have gone deep in depravity, but I will chastise all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. Their spirit of harlotry is within them. And they do not not know the Lord. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against them. And Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. They will go with their flocks and their herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord. For they have borne... Illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them with
0: their land. This is a pretty clear statement of God's view of the people at this time. He's addressing it to who? The priests. The priests and as of Israel, as of Israel and as
2: of, Israel.
0: as of the king. Who's excluded from that grouping? Pretty well covers everybody, <laughs> doesn't it? <he? laughs> That's a universal uh, call. None are exempted. And what does he say about all these groups? They're They're going to be judged. Judgment applies to you. That's you every one of these. And he gives the reasons why they were going to be judged, why God was punishing them. What are some of those reasons? Worship they worship idols, they're a snare, what does that mean? It says they're a snare and a net, what does that mean they were doing? Trapping
2: people.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. And maybe even preying on the people instead of protecting or helping them. They've actually tried to use people and catch people in their snares. They've gone deep into depravity in verse 2. They played the harlot, which refers to their idolatry. And uh, they're they're very deeply entrenched in sin. Uh, Their hearts are seared. He says that they've got a spirit of harlotry within them. So they're very much unfaithful in their heart and their attitude against God. Uh, and they don't know God. And if you don't know God, you don't really have anything that can counteract that course. You know, you're just going farther and farther away from God without without something to bring you back. Um, and then in verse 5, what was their problem?
2: Right.
0: Their pride, which is probably as big an issue in their not coming back to God as anything. Think about what you know about the history of God's people. What were some of the kinds of things they tended to be proud of? Their heritage. Well, their wealth.
1: Their righteousness. Their what? Their righteousness.
0: Their righteousness. What else do they tend to be proud of? Their laws. Their laws? Military power. Their military power. What else? Being God's chosen people. Okay, what else?
2: Just themselves.
0: Themselves? Their possessions? Their possessions? About their accomplishments, how about their palaces and their fortresses, how about uh, the Baals, and so forth and so on. There's a lot of things that they tended to put their trust and confidence in, and that was the great obstacle against their turning back to God, is that they had pride and and confidence in all these other things. Now, they did do something. What did they do in verse 6? They do what?
2: They go uh, with the
0: rocks and birds, to seek the Lord. In other words, they're trying to seek Him through doing what? Sacrifices. Sacrifices. Well, that always helped, right? No? Well, I thought God wanted sacrifices. Wouldn't God be happy if they're coming with a bunch of sacrifices? Exactly. See, they misdiagnosed the problem and the solution they were full of idolatry and pride and corruption and exploitation of people and all they were doing is bringing some animals and offering them up to God thinking God will be happy with us now well that's a superficial solution to a deep seated heart problem and God's not going to be impressed with that it's not like God just needs more animals offered up to him You know, it's like people today who just think that they can solve their spiritual problems by going to more worship services or paying more money in the collection plate or whatever. Not bad to go to more worship services. It might be a good thing if we gave more money. But that's not going to solve the problem if we're full of a corrupt heart and a corrupt spirit before God. So, they're treacherous. And God is not going to put up with it. Comments or questions on the first seven verses. JD. Verse four.
1: Um, what do you think it really means by their deeds do not them God? Well,
0: I just think they've gone so far into sin, they've just done so much wrong that they've got a lot invested. They just, they just, uh, um, you know, are, are kind of seared, they're kind of hardened in that. And uh, if, if they went back on that now, look at all they'd have to renounce. That's what I would say
3: same
0: well I don't know why Mizpah and Tabor necessarily but do you know where Mizpah and Tabor were um, I'm guessing Mizpah was in yes the on the right hand side of Jordan Tabor. River Tabor on the left so it at least carries with it still this idea of the universal land this is a good picture oh, I mean, a lot of
2: the
0: prophets they, they do, kind of from one side to the other. So you see that the judgment applies universally in all the area of, of
4: the land and of the people. Other questions and comments? Yes. What is the connotation of begotten pagan children or illegitimate or something in the second half of seven? Is it that their deeds are so wicked that even their children are wicked now because they've taught them that? Or is it something else? I don't know the answer to that. It's a good question. Sure. Caleb. I think, um, I think uh, what
1: you said about verse 6 is helpful. Because I think sometimes we need to consider what we're offering God. Uh, and I think you know, what, what we see here is kind of a picture of what Malachi was talking about. In uh, chapter 1 where they were offering the final food before the Lord. Because our hearts weren't right. And I think we should ask ourselves you know, the question uh um, you know, how does God view the sacrifices that we're offering, you know, in our lives? Because you are more like the people in Malachi's day who are offering defiled food or more like the Philippians who are offering a fragrant aroma before the Lord. You know, uh, we need to consider not just what, what we're offering to God, and, you know, physically in our know, worship and those types of things,
5: but what's going on inside of us and make our heart rate.
0: Well, that's exactly right. You know, I mean, I've got friends of mine who I text or, or talk to or whatever who when they're doing really badly spiritually they're very strict on their Bible reading schedule and they're, they're talking to people about the Bible and, and they're doing all these things and they're telling me that you know well, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and all the while if they were honest they're doing terribly in their life But sometimes when we're doing terribly in our life, we try to make up for it by doing a bunch of good things and convincing ourselves and convincing other people that we're okay, even though our heart is really corrupt. And and I think that's a danger for us. That we're going to, instead of really repenting and doing what God wants, we're going to just do a bunch of specific things that we think should make us good. You know, well, I I, I talked to five more people about God, so I'm good to you know, immerse myself in my own lust and and, uh, you know, anger and whatever. Seth? I was just uh, wondering, the illegitimate children here, do they
1: be like when they marry into uh, foreign nations, and God tells them to put away your wives and your children, the children may be innocent in that sense, but they're still a little kids.
0: Could be. There's not a lot about that in yeah. the pre-exilic prophets, so but maybe so.
1: Could it go back to the image of harlotry? And so, I'm not sure exactly what you want to see, but the idea of giving idols son of God
0: dedicating their children to the idols or something.
1: Maybe having them growing up in an environment where they would turn pagan if they continued their idolatry. Um, you know, that would be their influence on Could be. Other comments or questions?
0: Noble.
2: You're talking about how they're, you know, they try to go to the
1: sacrifices and stuff. <clears throat> and, you know, in the next chapter, uh, six, verse 6,
0: yes exactly w- w- we confuse the two you know we god wants obedience and and service springing out of a good heart when we try to just use some actions as a substitute for a good, heart and righteous life it's not going to work you know, I mean that if, if you're thinking well I can cover up my sin because I got my Bible weeding in today and so I'm okay even though you know I got in on the internet and did a bunch of stuff I shouldn't have or whatever well, I mean you can't just like offset you know, wickedness with you know, checking off a few more things off the list, and, and but that's kind of a human mentality. It's easier to do something than to repent. Other comments. Okay, uh, eight fifty. And eight, you've got a horn, trumpet, alarm. Those figures symbolize what? Warning of danger. Warning of danger of what in this case probably? war Yeah, expressed in what way? Invasion. Invasion. <clears throat> now, think about where the enemy would come come from, usually from the north and where is the warning being sounded? Beth-Avon which we know means beth L, just playing on that word, and Gabia and Ramah. Do you know where those places were? In where? In
1: Benjamin
0: which is right on the division between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Huh. If the warning's already down in Benjamin, what does that mean? Hosea is primarily written to who? The Israel, the northern kingdom. If we've got the uh, alarm being sounded in Benjamin, guess what? The rest of the nation's already gone into captivity. Benjamin was the one tribe that belonged to Judah. So basically that's say it's like, uh, um, well, uh, you know, I, I live uh, near Louisville, Kentucky. And, uh, you know, if, if 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 Canada invades and, uh, you know, the, the warnings are all already being sounded in New Albany and Corridon. You guys in Indianapolis are over. <laughs> you know. You get you get the you get the battle already down there. They've already conquered the rest of the state. So you get the warnings being sounded down on the division between Israel and Judah. That means Israel's gone. So he's envisioning the punishment of the enemy invasion already there. And uh, it's right behind you, Benjamin. It's right on the doorstep of Judah already. The ten tribes are history. That's the way God sees that. This is kind of the warning of the punishment God's going to give. And then, you know, he says Ephraim will become desol- a desolation, which is a result of the invasion. Um, verse 10 is interesting. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. All right. Those who moved a boundary. Tell me something about moving a boundary. Josh.
1: Is this referring to uh, moving a property
0: line? Yes. Like, deceitfully? Yes. You know, I don't know what kind of surveyors they had or what whatever, but they had markers like stones or something that would, you know, mark off where the property line was. Well, guess what you want to do if you want to kind of grow your farm a little? take those stones and you move them over a little bit every year (laughs) and you gradually just creep up getting more and more land for yourself now the Old Testament has several passages that condemn the moving of the boundary lines there's a couple of passages in Deuteronomy a couple in Proverbs and so forth But now he's not saying that the princes were moving the property boundary lines here. Look at what he says. The prince of Judah become like those who move a boundary. They become like those who move a boundary. So what does that mean these princes were probably doing? They were deceitful.
1: They were deceitful. They were taking what wasn't theirs. Or they move another line. Like the law. Like the
0: line between... Right and
1: wrong?
0: Yes. I think that's what he's saying. Just like people physically move the boundary line to dishonestly increase their land, the princes were moving the boundary line that God set between right and wrong. I think that's the idea. If so, that's a really cool way of looking at that when you move the boundary line between truth and error, you have a real problem. That's exactly what people are trying to do. Have you seen that being done in our time? I mean, even in my generation, I know I seem old, but I'm really not, you know, but when I was a kid growing up, I remember in second grade, there was a girl in my class at, uh, I guess, I just switched schools, I, I think it was in Southport Elementary uh, by that time. There was a girl in my class, her parents, they were divorced. I remember thinking, oh wow, they're divorced, wow. I just always kind of, I mean, I felt sorry before, you know, I realized it wasn't her fault, but it's like, oh wow, they're, they're divorced, her parents. <laughs> well, do you see how the boundary line is being moved? You know? And, uh, you know, the worst thing in my high school, in my junior high maybe, probably about the worst put down you could use for any guy is to call him queer when he was gay. You didn't even say that word, usually. And if they said that about you, I mean, people would fight over that. Nobody would ever be one of thought of that way. See how the boundaries are moving? and uh, we do that a lot, that, that's our danger, we do that personally you know, we, we kind of, when, when we start uh, not doing very well spiritually sometimes we start saying, well you know, I guess really this isn't that bad <laughs> you know, I used to think this was wrong, but now I realize it's not so bad <laughs> do, you ever, do you ever see yourself doing that? just kind of keep moving the boundary, moving the boundary <laughs> You know, uh, well, I, I used to be strict, but now, now, if we move, if we move because we see, we understand the Bible better, honestly, well, that's good. But so often we're moving because our conduct is moving, and we're trying to justify ourselves. So, uh, I
1: know, growing up, I feel like I can, uh, as you mature physically and assume that you're maturing spiritually, especially when it comes to watching movies and that type of thing. As you're growing older, yeah, at one time, G was the only thing I could watch, and eventually I would start watching PG movies, and then, you know, then I feel like, well, I'm old enough now, I hear it all around me in the world, I can tolerate PG-13, I can tolerate R-rated movies that just have just a few cuss words in it a scene that I'll have to fast forward through. I can tolerate that because I'm mature enough now to do so. Or in fact, I may not be mature enough. None of us may be mature enough to tolerate. That. Yeah, when we
0: start moving those boundaries, we really need to start thinking am I really moving them for the better? Or am I just becoming more numb to the
5: dangerous effects of sin? Mark? <laughs>
2: Around the our eyes adjust
0: Yes. We become accustomed to doing wrong. I think that's exactly right. You know, we adjust to it, it just seems more natural to us, dog.
1: You said a while ago, we say to ourselves, Well, that's not so bad. I had a friend that pointed that out several years ago that she hated that phrase. And I think she's right on the money. Instead of saying "Is this a good thing?" You say it's not so
2: bad,
1: yes. and that's exactly the line that you're talking about. Instead of saying "I want to go as far as I can on the good side," it's like, "Well, that's not so bad, so okay."
0: Yeah, good point. We sort of start out with the wrong premise. If we're saying, well, is that really bad or just sort of bad? Well, uh, it's like saying, you know, is that really poisonous or just sort of poisonous? You know, Uh, that's probably not something you want to dabble with, you know, Uh, because any degree of poison is probably not real healthy. Uh, And any degree of evil is really probably not at all what you want. I mean, you move that line... Well, I mean, is God going to be happy with that? If he wasn't even happy with moving the boundary lines between the properties, (laughs) what about the boundary lines he's established? I think that's his idea. Yeah, Russ.
1: I read a book that referred to it as just the amount of poison you can take, but nothing more. (laughs) So if you can take one drop, then it's one drop. If you can take two, it's two. But you better not go to two teaspoons. But if you can... (laughs) Just as much as you can take.
0: Would you do that? Even if it's still poison. Would you? Would you be willing to drink all the poison you could drink, just so it didn't kill you? Made you deathly ill, but you were pretty sure you could get that much into you without killing you. Would you do it? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Is this is like a. Pit? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make sense, does it? What, why would you want to? I mean, those things just, they don't make any sense at all in the physical realm, but you want, what we try to take all of the... Inappropriate scenes, we possibly could, just so long as we're pretty sure it wasn't going to actually send us to hell. You know, it might really weaken us and hurt us, but we pretty much thought God wouldn't actually damn us for it. So we'll we'll go up to that later. Is that is that what we think about? I mean, that would be an odd way to reason physically, and we all kind of laughed at that. Why would we do that spiritually? Yes. What
5: they call that tip-toeing
0: on that boundary? Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of trying to get as close as you can. I, I have a little bit of fear of heights. I'm not terrible with that, but I'm not as comfortable with that as a lot of people are. And you know what I really don't like? You know, have you ever been to any of these, like, overlooked places? And, uh, you know, I enjoy a pretty view, but I, I'm not the kind of guy... To, to walk right over to this rope and be I don't want that. You know, that's just a little closer than what I care to be. You know, if I stand back a couple of steps where I, I feel pretty secure, then okay. But I'm just not good with, I, I remember one time when, when this is years ago, we went up Pike's Peak. I don't know how it is now. They didn't have any guardrails or anything. And now, I, I, you know, you, you hide the inside you know because I mean whoa and and I mean dad never drove I mean trying to just get see if he could just perch his tire you know his right hand tire right on that edge I mean why would you do that you see the ideas I mean we love God we want to please him we want to be as strong as we can be we want to take as little poison as possible
4: <laughs> yes Chad you can ask any alcoholic with one wondering that won't hurt me. Or even that faith smoker. or spark me. will start off one cigarette and I won't hurt nothing. But eventually
0: it becomes a habit. Sure. And that's the, that's the nature of sin. And that's kind of how the devil draws us in. Sort of like
5: quicksand. This kind of pulls us further in. Logan.
1: I think the whole philosophy of the thing is what we've got to show. Because no matter what you apply it to, Christianity isn't about what you can get away with. Or the least you can do it's always about what you can do the positive side of it because saying what's the least we can do is how Israel got into all their troubles in the first place
0: sure Patrick
1: um, going back to the poison
5: sin analogy if we were truly if we truly cared about ourselves and those around us, why would we have the poison in the medicine you see why do we even get close to it it's not so much as putting the poison in the dropper and holding it to your mouth that's why does
0: have it in my house? Makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, we just really want to be as strong as possible, as close to God as possible, as pure as possible. So these people were being too lax about that, and God's going to pour out His wrath like water on, him, on them. Um, he says in verse 11, Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to follow man's command. There's a little bit of debate about the translation, but I think he means the golden calf of Jeroboam. I think that's what he means. And uh, that was that came from man. That wasn't God's religion. So, verse 12, what was God going to be like to them? Long and rotten. Now, what do a moth and rottenness have in
4: common?
0: Slow, agonizing, agonizing, gradual decay, uh, invisible, but a moth will eventually destroy your clothes. Rottenness will eventually destroy the food or whatever. And that God is just going to, to, to decay them. They're going to break down. Because they're not following the Lord. Ephraim realizes this. Judah sees his wound. Verse 13. And what does Ephraim try to do to respond to their problem? Go to Assyria. Perhaps that refers to the alliance that Menahem, one of the last kings of Israel, tried to uh, uh, deal do with the Assyrians in 2 Kings 15. But that's not going to help going to help to make some alliance with some foreign nation? They're not going to be able to save them. And so they turn to the wrong place. Verse 14, what's God going to be like? You really don't want to face God that way. He emphasizes <laughs> that I, even I will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away. There will be none to deliver. God is going to destroy them until they do What? Yes, and turn back to God. God punishes until we come back to Him. That's His purpose. Even the punishment is to bring us back to Him. Comments and questions? On chapter 5, same. I'm
1: kind of seeing in the uh, New King James Version says in verse 11, that He willingly walked by human precepts. I guess it's kind of the same idea of when we do things, even the small things in the world. They have a way of getting into our lives. The only like walking by those things will corrupt us and make us just as the Israelites were. Um, how often do we let what other people say? Maybe even those in the higher society that we look up to, the people that have PhDs, or people that have all these great degrees that should know what they're talking about, and we listen to them and let's, It it. It kind of influences the way we think. Mm-hmm. Walking by new precepts. Know, it's, it's, it's hard for me to balance
3: that because it's so dangerous to do that. Definitely. Yes. I kind of struck by him talking about their pride and then saying they won't acknowledge that they're wrong and that's what's really killing them. Not only are they, when we as Christians sin, we should be very ashamed of what we've done. And oftentimes when we know we're going to do something wrong, we do it when no one else is around. But they are so depraved that not only are they doing it, they're proud of what they're doing refuse to say that that was a wrong action to take. And that's God's frustration with them. They know what's right, but they refuse to admit it. They don't acknowledge it and say, this is right, this is wrong.
0: They're pretty hardened in their sin.
3: Other comments?
0: Okay, chapter 6, verses 1 to 3.
3: Come, let's return to the Lord. For He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day, that we may live before Him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. And He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth.
0: There's definitely debate about the sense of this passage. I connect it with the end of chapter 5. Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. And I see this as expressing their seeking God and what God would do. When they finally allow the judgment to cause them to repent and seek God, then they return to the Lord and He heals. He bandages. He revives. He raises up. Um, God wants to bless, so the very God that punished them, they would turn to and he would bless them again in due time, on the third day, so to speak, that's kind of the ideal time for a resurrection, and, uh, and you see how so often Jesus more or less recapitulates the history of his people, uh, but, I, but I think this is this is the hope. of of, of them returning to God and seeing God's blessings let us know, he says in verse 3 the Lord, his going forth is as certain as the dawn, he's like the rain the spring rain, God is, is a blessing, he'll be like the rising of the sun, he'll be like the rain, God will respond to his people if they'll come back to him, God wants to respond to them, he wants to bless them but they need to turn back to him so I think this is this is what you hope they'll do and this is the response God would have. When the, when the punishment finally causes them to turn back to God then they can count on God to uh, be merciful back to them. Comments and questions on this?
1: Jay? There in verse 3 you have what he's been saying there hasn't been. So let us press on to know the Lord. And uh, in back in chapters... Uh,
2: and uh, 2, you have them not knowing the Lord, this is them coming back to the
1: Amen. Mindy? I'm not sure what sense to take this in, but, like, taking it in a good sense, I guess. You're saying that they are doing a good thing in this. In verse 2, they said, He will revive us after two days He will raise us up on the third day. Maybe the idea that it doesn't happen immediately, it's not like you repent, oh, well, okay, we're totally fine now, now that's going to bless us, maybe the idea that you need to really show that you're repenting, you need to work at it for a little while before you we repent.
0: Well, and the truth is that sometimes the, the response of God to our repentance is not instantaneous. I mean, that's just the way that is. Uh, Haggai talks about that, and Haggai too. People were frustrated because they'd, they'd started rebuilding the temple and still things were bad. And, and there was a lag time I don't know what all God's purposes in that are uh, but, but that's, that is the case you know it's, it's, there are times you repent and it's not going to have immediate results uh, this is uh, maybe a bizarre illustration of this uh, but some of you I think probably a lot of you maybe saw the movie Fireproof and sort of the idea of what the main character does in trying to win his wife back whoa day after day he starts treating her really good and she's about as cold as a you know, freezer she she refuses to acknowledge anything he does Uh, just very uh, and he just keeps doing it and nothing happens and nothing happens and nothing happens well that may be true in in all sorts of ways but we turn back to God it's not just like that very split second okay now everything's wonderful Uh, so, yeah other comments?
2: Patrick.
5: I find it interesting in the case of Saul's conversion of the Apostle Paul, which is when he had been converted, when he had known the treatment, he fasted and prayed for three days before he was baptized. And so that might have some significance there as well. Yes.
1: I can really see this going either way um, with the previous verse or the following verses. What makes you think this isn't something that's empty
0: and shallow? Because of the previous verses. I think that is perhaps the controlling factor. We'll talk about the succeeding verses in a minute. But, yeah, this some people judge this as being superficial and insincere. And that's also a possibility. Um, but, but what he says in the end of verse 15 makes me think this is sort of an illustration of what will happen if they'll seek We've got a, a song for so you know.
2: those verses. Yes, maybe, is. maybe at the end of this we can sing it or if you want to do it in, a break, in the middle or whatever. Sure. whatever. So, yeah. I don't know, how do how many of you know, let us know Jehovah. It,
0: it, it is based upon the positive interpretation of yes. these verses that I've suggested uh, but but there definitely is another side to the question and I may change my mind one of these days but this morning I got up thinking this was positive so besides that that's what
5: I've got in my notes
0: well look at the next section for a second because I think this is uh, this is relevant
4: Um, 4 through 11.
1: What shall I do with you, O Abraham? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood, as robbers lie in wait for men. So the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the
0: fortunes of my people. To me, he looked forward to the blessings of their returning to God, and then he comes back to the present reality. You know, basically the end of 15 until they acknowledge and seek. And, and so you see that envision in 1 through 3. But the truth is, that's not where they're at yet. That would be the effect of the punishment that brings them back to repentance. But right now, what do I do with you? we you frame of Judah. Because right now you don't see them turning back to God. You don't see their loyalty to God lasting any longer than a cloud. Any longer than the dew. Their, their, their determination to serve God is superficial and goes about just like that. Goes, goes by just like that. There's no depth to it. That's the problem. God can't bless them now. Because look the way they are. You can't count on them. You, God turns their, his back for a second on them. And they're off. You know, come in whatever kind of sin. And, and God wants real, true repentance and service. Not some sort of, you know, here today, gone tomorrow sort of thing. Alright. With that, comments and questions through verse 4. That is a problem for us, that superficial, insincere, you know, how many times have we committed ourselves to God, man, I'll never mess up again, God, you know, I'll, I'll do this, you know, sometimes you feel good if you make a commitment to God. You know, you, you feel good if, if you say, okay, I'm going to do this and this and this and this. That's what I'm going to do. And you make that commitment, you make that determination. Oh man, it feels great. There's only one problem. Making the commitment, the determination, really doesn't change anything. It's not a bad idea if you follow through, but if you make the determination, then you don't do it. It then not really help you. It's easy to... It's easy to say, oh, I'm going to really change. Here's what I'm going to do. But do we do it? Or is it just, you know, I made the statement about as soon as it got out of my mouth, I'd already gone back on it. I know people just like that. You know, I'll never do this again. And it wasn't a day. (laughs) Right back. It's not what we want. Thoughts?
1: better not to bow than to bow and
0: not pay. That is true. But in this case, it's almost you've got to make the change. You know, we may need to invest more in actually making the change than just salving our conscience by saying every day, I'm going to change.
2: Mark. Sometimes it doesn't solve. Like, sometimes on the road I will I'll later,
0: i actually Or well, you know what happens too, and I see this sometimes. Think about the process. I don't know what what sin you want to pick. Um, you know, but but I don't know. We'll say we'll say you you. Uh, You lied. How do you feel after you lied? you ever lie? How'd it make you feel? Guilty. That hurts you. Well, what should you do when you feel guilty? Not a godly sorrow. Not a godly sorrow. That's exactly right. Should it bother you when you do wrong? Or, or maybe, maybe just as well, you, you you know, the one we used earlier. You know, you got on the internet to see something you shouldn't. How does it make you feel when you get done? Empty, stupid, you hate yourself, you feel guilty. Alright, now how, how many of you really love feeling guilty? You know, it's just a really great feeling. You know, you really enjoy that godly sorrow. That just really causes tears to come to your eyes as you think about how much you've hurt God. Anybody really love that feeling? Well, so what do we want to do? We want to short-circuit the process so we can feel better. We don't always want to deal with our sin. We want to feel better. What will make us feel better? Some quick resolution. Uh, You know, oh, well, I, I, I know I did wrong, but that's behind me. That's in the past now. I'm never going to do that again. And So you don't have to deal with the sin. You don't have to confess the sin. You don't have to grieve the sin. You don't have to grow sorry. It's just like, okay, but I'm fine now. You know, I prayed a quick prayer for forgiveness, and, and I, tr- I turned to, I'll, I'll never do that again. Here's my commitment. And then, that lasts about that long. <laughs> because I didn't really go through the process. I didn't really deal with my sin. I just swept it under the rug as quick as I could and, and stomped on it to so where it's okay now. Now I feel okay. Now, I, now I'm not guilty. Do you, do you ever do that? You know, uh, that, that's a strong temptation to me. Is to just, I don't want to feel that feeling so if I can just say, oh, I'm different. Oh, I'll never do that. Oh, I'm okay now. Then I don't have to feel bad. It doesn't mean anything, because we're not going to stick with it. It's just kind of a superficial thing, because it didn't go through the grieving process. Does that make any sense? you been through, Have you been there and done that? <laughs> yeah. Comments and thoughts? Yeah, chat. A lot of times people try to justify it, and nobody
2: knows about it. It's a secret, and it you to yourself. And sometimes people in their mind will justify it, as long as you're not hurtful, why it's okay.
5: Yeah, we're terrible about that, as if God was as blind as people around us are. And and the truth is, we rarely keep sins even from other people as well as we think we have. But that's irrelevant. God sees anyway.
3: As if we think our sin doesn't hurt God.
5: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Other comments.
3: <coughs> I think it's an interesting trap you brought up, that sin makes you feel terrible every time you do it. You talk about this faithfulness like a morning cloud, saying, I'm not going to do that again, and then we do it again. And I think the devil's real trap there is, is whatever he's convincing you to do never satisfies you. And that's why you give up that commitment. He says it's going to make you happy, and then it didn't make you happy, so you do it again, because next time it's going to be better. We just keep doing that. And you eventually can get to the point of that faithfulness like a cloud, where you just go... I can do it, take advantage of God's mercy right after, don't feel any guilt, good to go. Because God will always forgive me. And I think that's what these people are doing. They're doing whatever they want. They're saying, Lord, please forgive me, good to go. Let's, let's kill whatever we need to kill for this one to get out of here. And then us go right home and do it again. And as you can see from this, God does not take any pleasure in that kind of forgiveness. Saying, Lord, please forgive me for something I'm going to do tomorrow, that's not repenting. A godly sorrow is an act of sorrow. There's a sorrow of the world that I've done something wrong with consequences. There's a sorrow of God that is, I have done something wrong and I need to work and do everything I can to make this right. And that's the difference in these kind of people. They don't really care what they've done, they care if there's a consequence. Yep. Yeah. Good point.
1: Logan. We're talking about that taking advantage of God's grace, that reminds me of the passage in Romans 6. Again, verse 14 says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. But then shall I say, because we are not under law, but under grace, may it never be. You do not know that when you present yourselves as someone as slaves for obedience, your a slave for the one who you obey, either sin resulting in death, or obedience resulting in righteousness. It makes me think of, you know, we think well, God will always forgive the slaves. He won't forgive us if our heart's right, because we can only be slaves of God, so,
0: that's exactly right. Caleb.
1: It's uh, yeah, a very good point that you try to short circuit the thing. Uh, I, I definitely don't give that myself. Uh, but it reminds me of when and I reading a book recently, and he also made a really good uh, analogy for the way that we look at God often. He said that we kind of look at God like a clock. Like, you know, if God works in a certain way. You know, given a certain input, it always give you know, like a certain output. It's like a machine, you know. Yeah. And I really like, I really like Hosea because we're, we're starting to look at, you know, God is like a, you know, he has emotions. He, I mean, we're made in his image. We we feel bad, but I think we we really forget about how God feels and we look at, you know, I'm not right with God like a machine, and so I've got to, okay, the machine's broken. I've got to fix it as fast as possible. And then we look at how we feel, and it's like we use how we feel
2: how God uses us. You know?
3: mm-hmm.
2: Good point.
3: We mentioned this earlier in the book uh, kind of more of an national context. Uh, I think of personal we, we look at guilt and obviously we hate that. Uh, we want to avoid that as much as possible. I really feel like we should be asking the Lord to feel more guilty. Uh, that we pray to him that he would let us feel the weight of our sin. Uh, let's feel the weight. Uh, and Let's feel it more, for a longer period of time. And that's hard because we know when we're praying that the Lord might just give us what we're for. But certainly that would be best for us. If we felt that guilt for longer, uh, that would certainly be a motivating factor.
5: That's an interesting thought. I don't think I've prayed that before. But that makes a lot of sense.
0: You know, we have this idea that our biggest goal is to avoid pain you know i mean you wonder i wonder how much money is spent in this country on painkillers wow it's a lot we want to avoid pain and and we have a lot of emotional and spiritual painkillers we just don't want to have to deal with it we don't have to feel bad so we're going to do anything so we can feel okay. Let me feel okay right now. Feeling okay is not the goal. Being okay is. you know. And being okay, the step to being okay may be feeling bad. Um, we just got to resist that temptation to always try to escape the bad feeling. I don't want to deal with it. It, it depresses me. It, it, it uh, tenses me up. So I don't want to have to deal with it. I, we all struggle with I do at least but really the godly sorrow you remember what Paul said in that godly sorrow passage in 2 Corinthians 7 he said I, I was really I was really sorry I would sent you the letter so I was worried about how you respond but now I'm relieved and I'm not worried about having sent it anymore because it made you sorry it made you sad <laughs> now it wasn't it made it sound like, almost when he read it, that he's so glad they were sad. Well, in a way he was. But not just that they were sad, but that their sadness was a godly sorrow that led them to repentance. I mean, sometimes the very best thing you could do for somebody is to to help them feel bad. Would you do this? You Most of you don't have children, but you can imagine having children. One of you, One of these days you probably will. You have a little button you can push if you want. That will do this for the child, youth, the children you have. Push the button, and it means never in their whole life will your child feel any pain. Wouldn't that be great? Would you push that button? Yeah. The experienced mother wouldn't. Why wouldn't you?
2: what pain. Why? you, your hands about
0: to burn off. Absolutely. Pain
2: spank,
0: is... When I spank them, I want them to feel <laughs> <laughs> I thought about it that way, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. But hey, yeah, you're exactly right. Pain is such a blessing. You don't feel it. You don't know the danger. You don't know you're sick or you don't know you're on fire. You don't know whatever. You need the pain. You would not want to do that to your kid. Somebody, uh, yeah,
1: I think a a prayer that Jeremiah prayed, it was very similar to this in Jeremiah 10. uh, Verse 24 says, Correct me, O Lord, uh, but with justice, not with your anger, or or you would bring me to nothing. But he's saying, Correct me, bring consequences on me, give me sorrow. And that's the verse right after it says, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not not in himself.
5: Yes. Mike.
1: You
0: Not know, about pain, if, just as an example, if you didn't have pain, then, you know, you're watching TV and you smell the bacon fine in the kitchen, and then you realize, oh, that's my hand, I guess I'm going to have to use my left-hander right now. Yeah, it mean, wouldn't be good, would it? All right, other
3: thoughts about that, Right. Uh, a friend of mine's family, his parents went through a divorce when he was somewhat young and, um, maybe 10 years old and... Somebody commented to him now that he's about my age, and um, commented to his dad saying, "Wouldn't it have been wonderful if your son didn't have to go through that?" And his dad said, "No, I'm perfectly glad he went through it. That that was such an opportunity, such a a trial that caused a spiritual matur- maturity to grow in him that would never have happened otherwise." Yeah. Patrick. In my personal experience, I've never I've never
5: gained as much maturity or health from some of the pains I've had, some of the heartbreaks that I've had. Because some this trials, our faith is refined by the prior trial. And so if we are so worried about not feeling pain, we don't in, in a sense, we don't want to grow.
3: We don't want to grow towards God. That's what we are called to do.
2: Yes.
5: Good point.
3: Yes. Oh, it was interesting. In Ecclesiastes 7:3, it says sorrow is better than laughter. It provides sad countenance; the heart is made better. And you talked about the example of a parent. I really think that's how God's coming in. He's coming in not only with force, but He's coming in with His rebuke. As a child, I can remember my parents could beat me until the sun went down. It didn't matter. But Mom and Dad saying, "I'm disappointed in you." He comes in with both tries. He says, first I tried to be nice to you, then I tried to rebuke you, then I had to come in with force. You're trying everything you can to get that child to respond and to turn them back. And he doesn't do these things, once again, because he loves doing them. His parents love beating their child. They've got something really wrong with them. He comes in doing this because he says, I love you and I want you to change. I want you to be better. And we think about in life, well, if God exists, why are there so many hardships and sorrows? It's because he doesn't want us to stay the way we are. He wants us to always be better. So right. that's the best way to get there.
0: So we just learned that we ought not to try to avoid the pain. So.
5: If you remove pain, you also remove all the joy. Those are two things, uh, two sides at the same point. It's
0: a good point. That's true. Yeah. Sarah. So Along with that, we
1: need to definitely feel the guilt that, you know, our sin brings back to as much as we still that scar, we need to feel the joy and the complete forgiveness God, as
0: far as the of the Because if we let that guilt continue in us, it will hinder around from the ground. Yes, it's a stage that we must go through and then we must also receive God's forgiveness, see His grace, and allow Him to completely forgive and take away our sins. It's exactly right. I agree with that. Yes, Philip.
2: It James chapter 1 it talked about it. Altar, encounter
0: that's our sure. Tradition. it's a blessing to us when it's all said and done
5: Mark. it was the pain in this world it just helps us look forward to heaven
2: we know what to
0: that's true if things were too good here we might not look forward to what we have
5: to enjoy later
3: Yes. there was no suffering there would be no salvation because what did Jesus go through for us good point I mean, he didn't go through with sunshine and rainbows to bring them back to God. He went through something harder than we can
0: ever face. Yes. So here's the painful process, verse 5. Therefore, I've hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. God tried with the words of the prophets to carve out a holy nation. God's word is a sword. It's painful. It cuts. It it performs surgery. But that's God's purpose, is to shape us into something that is is worthy of him, that's holy and righteous. For As he he says in verse 6, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice of the knowledge of God. Uh, rather than burnt offerings, God wants real service, not just the outward, external, superficial service. So, God wants us to be loyal and committed to Him, and He's used the, His Word to try to to perform the painful surgery to make us what He wants us to be. Comments and thoughts through verse six. Verse seven is interesting. But like Adam, they've transgressed the covenant. There, they've dealt treacherously against me. Now, would you think about what Adam did? Remember, remember what Adam transgressed, right? And what were the consequences to Adam of transgressing God's command? Eternal death. Eternal death, and what else? being cast out of Eden. Evicted from God's garden. What were the consequences of their transgressing the covenant going to be? Evicted from God's land. There's a real parallel between them and Adam. And then, verse 8 and 9 is intriguing. Gilead's a city of wrongdoers tracked with bloody footprints. That doesn't sound very good. And as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they've committed crime. Now, that is just really outrageous. What's so outrageous about verse 9? The mediator
1: between God and man is killing the
0: people murdering yeah, And these are priests! Priests murdering people, actually ambushing and murdering them. That that's that's really that's that's bad. What what makes it? What's another factor that makes that really bad? They're
4: on the way to the cities of
0: refuge. They're on the way to one of the cities of refuge that was supposed to protect and pre, was supposed to prevent killing innocent manslaughterers. But really, it becomes a sanctuary for murderous priests. That that's, that's not at all the intention. Furthermore think about the symbolism of Shechem or not so much as symbolism but what do you remember about Shechem in the Old Testament history?
1: Isn't that a place where Simeon and Levi destroyed that entire village? Yes!
0: See any connection? Simeon and Levi had exterminated the people of Shechem back in Genesis 34 and now the descendants of Levi are killing on the way to Shechem So there's just a lot of irony in this. God's seen this as a horrible thing, and he's going to punish his people. He's going to bring a harvest of bad fruit for their sin. Comments and questions on chapter 6. Good to uh, discuss these things. You all seem to be doing okay. Everybody's still doing all right if you do you you want to why don't we do this like we did last time as I talk if you care to go ahead and stand for a few minutes and I'll sit you back down and you can stand just briefly and sit back down but I will continue to study as you do that but sometimes that just helps kind of uh... I get the advantage over you when I'm teaching here because I get to be standing the whole time and walking around and uh, that makes it a lot easier to keep myself alert so we'll just continue to read this and study it as we do this and uh... you know if after a minute or two you want to sit back down you may after a little while I'll have everybody sit back down, but you just do what you want to right now as far as that's concerned. All right, chapter seven. And chapter seven is a little cryptic in some of this. Well, let's see what we can get out of it. Chapter seven, verses one to seven.
4: When I would appeal to Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered, and the wickedness of Samaria, for they had committed fraud. A thief comes in, a band of robbers takes spoil outside. They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own deeds have surrounded them. They are before my face. They make a king glad with their wickedness, and princes with their lies. They are, they are all adulterers. Like an oven heated by a, ba- a baker, he ceases stirring the fire after kneading the dough, and so does leaven. In the day of our king, princes have made him sick and flamed with wine. He stretched out his hands with scoffers. They prepare their heart like an oven. While they lie in wait, their baker sleeps all night. In the morning it burns like a flaming fire. They are all hot like an oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings have fallen. None among them calls upon me.
0: Look at what God wanted to do in verse 1. What was God's desire? He wanted to heal them. God always wants to and longs to bless us. But when he wanted to heal them, his efforts were made with a new outbreak of sin and crimes. What were they doing? Stealing and defrauding. Stealing and defrauding. You know, dealing falsely. It's an evil time, and they don't—they don't realize, realize that God knows. He says their deeds are all around them. They're before my face. You know, you may conceal something, but really, it's right there before God. You know, every sin we commit is right in God's face. Do you ever think about it that way? You know, we so often think, well, we've hidden it from somebody else, so we've hidden it from God. But God says, I can see them as plain as day. They're right there on your face. I wanted to heal you. I wanted to bless you. And you wouldn't let me. Comments and questions on verses 1 and 2. We have this really interesting section it's hard to understand. It says with their wickedness, they make the king glad. So somehow or other, they make the king happy. Now I suspect they may even flatter the king, say the things the king wants to hear. Um, and and their princes with their lies. So they're making the kings and the king and the princes happy by lying to them, by flattering them. You know, a lot of times, flattery is kind of a cover for stabbing somebody in the back. And it's kind of a decoy, you know, because you flatter somebody and they're all thinking about, you know, how excited, how proud they are that, you know, you've said such nice things about them and they're not noticing what you're doing on the other side. So that's what, they flatter the king. He said, they're all adulterers like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. And I think the idea is that uh, when you're 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 baking bread, um, what's one of the steps in the procedures to break make uh, to 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 to, you know, to I guess what would you say to make bread? Um, after you knead the dough, what what's necessary?
1: You have to let it rise. You have to
0: let it rise. And if you do any bread making, I mean, you wouldn't knead the dough and then. Pop in the oven right there. It has to have some time to rise. Well, that's what's happening with them. They they're, um, they, they have the, this period of time where the where the bread has to rise. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with the scoff, with scoffers. Um, so you got the uh, special day of the king, and the scoffers, the the conspirators are planning on. On baking their bread, but they have to wait until it's leavened. said their hearts are like an oven as they approach their plotting. Their anger smolders all night. In the morning it burns like a flaming fire. Now what I'm seeing is all night long, the bread is rising. And when morning comes, then they act. Now what, how do they act? Verse 7, they're hot like an oven, they consume their rulers. So what I really think he's saying here is that these conspirators flatter the king, but they're all the time plotting to assassinate him. And when the right time comes, they assassinate him, they kill him. Uh, this plot springs to life. And yet, the whole time, they were flattering him. They were trying to make him think he was with him. And to me, this is talking about just the uh, lack of integrity, lack of honesty, and the violence where they would plot against the king all the while they were flattering him at the right time. They would break him down, which, of course, reminds you a lot of the history of the northern kingdom where king after king fell through through assassination. He says in the end of verse 7, none of them call on me. You know, uh, they don't don't turn to God. Uh, They don't don't put their faith in God. So, I think he's talking about the treachery in the nation of plotting and assassinating their leaders. Why don't we sit down now? Okay, what do you think about that? Comments and questions to verse 7. That's a tough section. I think that's the gist of it. Okay. Alright, would somebody read
1: 8 to 16? Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake, not turned. Strangers devour his strength, yet he does not know it. Gray hair is also sprinkled on him, yet he does not know it. Though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have not returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all this. So, Ephraim has become like a silly dove, without sense. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. When they go, I spread my net over them. I will bring them down like the birds of the sky. I will chastise them in accordance with the proclamation to their assembly. Woe to them! for they have strayed from Me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against Me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against Me, and they do not cry to Me from their heart. When they wail on their beds, for the sake of grain and new wine they assemble themselves, they turn away from Me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against Me. They turn, but not upward. They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt.
0: All right, some really great pictures right here. Israel mixes himself with the nations. What was Israel supposed to do? Be separate. Why? Chose them. God chose them. He made them his holy special people and they were not supposed to be influenced and contaminated, corrupted by the nations around them. But they ended up mixing themselves with those nations. Then he says that Ephraim has become like a cake not turned. Um, think of uh, putting a pancake, uh, pancake batter on the skillet. Any of you have much experience with uh, cooking pancakes? Okay. Well, let's say you put the pancake batter in the skillet and you cook it. Whatever do you do with it. <laughs> Not on the stove, you know. You cook it. What's going to happen if what you do is you cook that pancake batter? What do you need to do? But you don't flip it. burn on one side side and raw on the other that's the way they were they were one side they were offering all these sacrifices and offerings and all this kind of stuff the other side was just raw and raw dough cold and worthless um because one side was, was, you know, all these sacrifices and offerings, and the other side, they weren't even concerned about serving God. You know, it's kind of like people who are, are really, you know, overbaked on Sunday and raw toward God through the week. I think that's kind of what they are here. They're this cake nut turned uh, strangers devour his strength if they don't know it. Gray hairs are sprinkled on him, yet he doesn't know it. They don't realize how bad off they are. Of course, there's nothing wrong with gray hair. You understand? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but what what do we usually associate with gray hair? Oh. Age and therefore wisdom. wisdom. Oh, or in this case. <laughs> yeah, good answer. Yeah, senility, a weakness, vulnerability. You know, they're they're old and feeble and they don't even realize it. Their pride testifies against them but they haven't returned to the Lord. They haven't sought him because their pride keeps them from turning to God in all their calamities and all their stresses. They just try to handle everything on their own. Comments and questions through verse 10. Some really good figures in that. Okay, in verse 11, what are they like? Silly dove. Now, how is Israel like a silly dove? Crawling oh, like on Egypt. And? So, what do we see here, this dove? Choo, choo, choo. Back and forth, back and forth. Go to one, then back to the other. Then back to one, then back to the other. You know, that's the folly of trusting man. You never have security. You never find the right combination. You always got to go back and forth, and here, there, and yonder. And and it was uh, well without sense. He says, "This is stupid." They should have trusted in God. So what what is God going to become in verse twelve? Yeah, he's going to become a bird catcher. He's going to, he's going to net this silly dove that can't make up its mind who it's going to serve, and uh, bring them down. They've strayed from him they rebelled against Him. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. God really wanted to save them, but they wouldn't let Him do it. They strayed from me. They rebelled against me. They speak lies against me. They don't cry to me. Do you see how personally God takes this? They haven't been faithful to Him, and He feels it personally. And He wanted to bless them. He wanted to redeem them. They wouldn't let Him. Their conduct would not allow Him to, to bless them, to help them. Comments and questions through 13. Look at verse 14. What's wrong with how they cry to God? It's not? Well, why do they cry to God if it's not from their heart?
5: It looks like to me they're looking for
0: physical blessings. Yes! Why are they crying to God? They don't like the their sin they don't want to Yeah. so what are they hoping for when they cry to God?.
2: Rain.
5: Yeah
0: give us some rain we need some more food God. you know they were the generation of Esau. they're only concerned with their stomach and uh, you know so they cry out to God just to get more food. what does that tell you about how they feel toward God?
1: It's like a vending machine.
0: Yes. We don't really love God. We just want stuff from Him. I always use this illustration. that I heard Don Truex use a number of years ago. When I come to this passage, tells about the time when his son was four. I think his name was Josh. I don't even know him. Uh, but but uh, it's been a long time ago, so Josh is probably your age right now. But, uh, you know, he said that every Sunday morning he would go very early in the morning to the church building, to you know review his lesson or whatever then come back home and pick up the family and take them to church but one particular Sunday morning Josh was up early and Don was getting ready to go to the church building and Josh says he's about four he says me go with you daddy and Don said no no I'm going to be back I'm just going to the church building now to look at my notes and I'll be back and pick you all up and Josh says me go with you daddy and so well, Don took more time and explained, you know, in detail what he was doing and why he wasn't and so forth and so on. You know, explained all this to 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 Josh. And he gets done, and Josh says, "Miko, with you, Daddy." <laughs> About that time. Vicky calls to Josh in the kitchen and says, "I've got a blueberry muffin in here for you, Josh." And he scampers off with the blueberry muffin in the kitchen. And Don, have you ever thought what it feels like to lose your son to a blueberry muffin? <laughs> 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 well, I don't know. We're not that much different. I mean, sometimes all we really care about is the stuff. Give us the stuff, God. We don't want the relationship. You know, so whatever we have to do to get the stuff, just make us feel good, make us happy, give us things. God sees through this. How would you feel if people are crying to you just so they can get something? How does that make you feel? Used. That's the word. You feel used. Do you think God doesn't feel that? Do you think God doesn't see that? He knows exactly what's going on it hurts him he sees they're not really serving me they're just crying out because they want something more to eat that's all it really means to them they turn away from me they don't want God they just want his stuff never mind thy kingdom come where's our daily bread that's all we really want How how many of us are like that give us enough stuff Make us happy. Make us feel good. That's all we need. Caleb. Do you think eternal
1: life is
3: one of those things and stuff? That we want from God. Maybe we just want to go to heaven. We don't really want a relationship with
0: God. Maybe we just want to escape hell. We don't really want a relationship with God. Even that.
3: I think we get in that trap without realizing it. Sometimes we start praying. We go, Lord, please heal. Or, Lord, can you do this? Can you do this? And we don't stop and realize what he's already done and how much we need to give back to him. I was at a study where someone put, we had to write what our goals for the next 24 hours were, and somebody put out there that they wanted to pray to God without asking him for a single thing. Just to say thank you for everything he did. And I, it really struck me that they would do that. And I think as he talks about moving the boundaries, they probably started off with their prayers to God of good intentions and it gradually became so much about them and so selfish they
0: just forgot God entirely and just focused on what He did. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I'm impressed by the prayer in Ezra 9. That's a prayer of total confession and doesn't seem to make any request to God. Amazingly, not even a request for forgiveness. It's just confession. Um... We need to really love God. We need to seek Him. God knows where we are. He says, although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. You know, I did all this for them. But but I can't trust Him. They turn, but not upward, they're like a deceitful bow. They never turn to God. You know, the the bow is not straight. I mean, you know, that you can't trust him. You can't count on him. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. You know, they will be, uh, this will be their derision in the land of Egypt. You know, they're going to They're gonna be uh, the subject of international jokes and wisecracks. And they're going to end up back in, up in Egypt, so to speak. The exodus will be reversed because they don't really love God. They're not seeking Him. All they want is stuff
5: out of God. Comments and questions? Yes, no more.
2: Where it says they're like a treacherous bow, you know, a bow is a very powerful weapon. But if you don't have a good bow and you pull it back and it snaps on you, you know, it breaks, it's going to be painful. And, you know, we need to be opposed to that. Yes,
5: absolutely. Other comments? Yes. I I think sometimes we especially young people get an idea in they head what they want their lives to be like in, say, five years, ten years, before, you know. they, they have just this perfect, you know, ideal situation that they want to be in. And, then, and this is our goal. And whereas, I guess in a sense, we need to look to the future and prepare ourselves, yes. But I think we get so caught up in it. I think that we... I think that we strive for certain things and forget, well, our future is dependent on what God wants for us, not what we want God to give us in our future. Good point. And so I think we just get the focus in the so often because of what we do. Good point. Russ?
1: I think, too, we forget to thank God when he throws every plan we had out the window.
0: We don't really trust him. Yeah. You don't realize that His will is superior to ours. Good point. Other comments or thoughts?
2: Yes, J.D. I
5: think this picture that we have here in verses 13 and following, of how God has continually blessed His people and they turn against them, and He blesses them more, and they continue to use His blessings back against Him, and it really falls into the picture that we had. Uh, in chapter 2 of how he's blessed the, blessed his people so much and they've said oh well, well, my lovers my boyfriends gave me this not my husband and you know it may not be that they were turning against God for your analogy earlier Blueberry muffin, but chapter 3 verse 1 the raisin cakes that they associated with the idol worship you know it, it's so uh, it, it's very spiteful very hateful very hurtful toward God when we take the things that he's blessed us with and don't fully recognize their source and the amount of love. good point yeah other comments
1: yes and by doing such we really limit ourselves and we limit the blessings that we have just by seeing the, the, the
5: good
2: point
5: other comments
0: All right, this is probably a good place for us to uh, stop here. Really good discussion. Thank you so much for that.